Malaysia, as the international hub for agri-commodity, is inviting the world to invest in the nation through Malaysia International Agri-Commodity Expo and Summit, MyAces. Showcase includes in-demand commodity products, services, and the latest in agri-technology. Be part of Malaysia's vision to advancing agri-commodity in a sustainable ecosystem. July 26 to 28 at My Tech Kuala Lumpur from 9am to 5pm. Details at myagricommodity.com. Brought to you by Ministry of Plantation Industries and Commodities. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, this is Frida Liu and you're listening to Matt's Play. Now, is Uber taking us for a ride? The e-hailing company is the latest subject of a whistleblowing data drop and the company that didn't seek a sale is suing the man who doesn't want to buy it. The strange saga of Elon Musk and Twitter. So we're opening today's show with a massive sigh, shrugging shoulders and a look of hangdog despondency or business as usual, as Matt Armitage calls it. Why the long face, Matt? As, as the barman said to the horse, sorry, Frida, that, that joke is almost as bad as uh, last week's. Uh, my dog has no nose. How does he smell? You know, this is actually something that a lot of people don't know about me. I'm fun. Um, <laughs> I consider myself a, a happy and optimistic person, even if nobody else does. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd rather be putting together shows about um, tech breakthroughs that are making lives better instead of talking about billionaires and mega corporations throwing their weight around and trying to push their vision of the future on everybody mm. else. So unfortunately, this is another one of those grumpy weeks for me because, you know, we can't ignore the big breaking stories, even though, you know, you'd often quite like to. So over the past few days, uh, reports have broken about some not so pleasant ways that big tech companies are alleged to have acted uh, to try and shape public opinion and how they've gone above and beyond sort of normal lobbying activities in order to shape governmental and regulatory policies in their favor. Uh, I should add that uh, these are all allegations at this point. Um, they're emerging stories that are broken by um, investigative journalists, and these stories are evolving. So think of it along the lines of uh, the stories like Cambridge Analytica, the Panama Papers, and Uber seems to be the target of this latest leak of internal documents. So we'll get to that in uh, a bit. But first, after turning the Twitterverse upside down earlier this year, Elon Musk has decided that he doesn't want to spend $44 billion taking over Twitter after all. Right. Before we get into any of that, what would you have liked to talk about this week? Really? I don't know. Um, I mean, I guess it wouldn't have been an entire episode, but, um, you know, something like the, the trend for 0.5 selfies. Have you heard about those? No. Well, they're really simple. Um, I, I don't know who remembers the photo of uh, Joe Biden and his wife with former President Carter and his wife that was taken last year. Uh, there was a, a lot of chatter about the way the picture was distorted so that the Bidens looked huge and mm. the Carters looked tiny like kids because it was taken very close up using either a fisheye lens or an ultra wide lens. So the perspective was distorted. 
0.5 selfies are basically the same thing. They're people taking selfies using the ultra-wide camera function on their phones. Uh, the, the normal magnification on the phones is um, times one. The ultra-wide is usually something like times 0.5, hence 0.5. And the results are, you know, these kind of really weird and distorted photos. And you would talk about that because? Well, because it's being used as an antidote to the antiseptic post selfie you know it's the opposite of pretending to be living your best life all the time and presenting that image of perfection you know most of us are messy people we have messy lives mm. and 0.5 selfies reflect that a little bit better even if the idea is you know it's a, it's a little bit self-conscious you're still not presenting the real you but you're presenting you that's warped in a kind of uglier manner. Um, you know, we've all been to those places. It's usually cafes and there's some kind of feature wall there for selfies and group shots. And you see groups of people taking shots over and over again. And it's repetitions of the same poses designed to show how much fun they're having, but they're not having fun. They're trying to create this artifice of having fun. They might have had fun before they started taking the photo, but they're not having a lot of fun while they're taking it. So the, the 0.5 selfie is this nice reaction to that overpreened, overperfected style of social media shots. And maybe it's a generational thing. Maybe it's Zoomers saying to millennials, get out of the way. This is how we do things now. Mm, thank goodness that's the fun out of the way. Now, shall we start with Twitter? Yeah, so this is the easiest story to unpack. Um, in a nutshell, uh, Elon doesn't want Twitter anymore. That's it. If you're not a Musk stan, that's as much of the story as you probably <laughs> need to know. You can just, you know, that's it. That's the end of the episode for you. Um, but it's unfortunate because... Musk made a formal bid for the company, and unless he can prove that Twitter is in material breach of their agreement, he's either on the hook for a $44 billion takeover bid, or he has to pay a $1 billion break fee to walk away. Uh, I think it was... Yes, yeah, so a small change for him, but you know he does have nine kids, so he's got to be careful about his catch. Um, I, I think it was you know March or April when all this started. So from nowhere, Musk suddenly became the biggest single shareholder mm. in Twitter and announced that he wanted to um, buy the company, effectively taking it private again. And he was going to do that to reform what he saw as some of its shortcomings. Chief among them was that he thought there'd been a rollback of the platform's commitment to free speech. He assumed a growing liberal bias amongst the company's staff, and he thought it had departed from the democratic town square principles that the company was founded on. So what's changed? Well, after putting together a consortium of investors, getting debt financing in place, he seems to have cooled on the idea. There were weeks of tweets that took pot shots at Twitter staff and board members, which is a really weird thing to do to improve morale in a company that you're trying to take over. And of course, there's been that spectacular yes. crypto crash and the ongoing stock market correction. So Twitter is now worth a whole lot less than it was at the end of Q1 2022. Um, possibly more importantly, Tesla shares are also worth a whole lot less. 
and Musk's debt financing was largely based on his Tesla shares, on top of which Twitter's most recent earnings reports didn't demonstrate the predicted levels of growth. So you have an asset with a declining value, debt financing that is similarly stretched by market conditions, and an uncertain financial outlook for the company they're looking to take over. You know, could this be a renegotiating tactic, though? It is possible. You know, brinksmanship is part of Musk's Mm. modus operandi or whatever you want to call it. Uh, He tweeted a few weeks ago along the lines that it might be possible to renegotiate. And tactics like this, although unusual, have worked for other companies in the past. And it does seem that Twitter now wants to be bought out. There are reports that some investors see Musk as the best chance for them to get a a serious return on their investments. But the whole thing has become bizarre. As the Washington Post points out, Twitter wasn't looking for a buyer, and now Musk doesn't want to buy. So the company that didn't want to be sold is now going to sue the person who doesn't want to buy it. I mean, it's just bizarro territory. Right. Okay. from what we know, uh, Elon Musk's attorneys filed papers on Friday the 9th, alleging numerous material breaches. Yes. So one of the claims that Elon Musk has been making over the past few weeks is that Twitter has not been forthcoming about the amount of bots and spam accounts Mm. that are on the platform uh, and that it potentially um, is including fake accounts in its daily active users calculations. Uh, Twitter has made announcements that it removes somewhere between half a million to a million accounts a day. Uh, It claims that uh, it has made all the data that it possibly can available to Musk's team, because I guess there are privacy concerns about what can be shared with third parties when it comes to user data. And that would include potential buyers. Right. Now, wasn't one of his claims to clean up the platform and be more vigorous at removing these bots and spam networks? Again, just pointing out, not a lawyer. Um, But, you know, this is one of the points that it's being argued undermines his own claims. It's also alleged that the agreement he signed with Twitter was pretty loose by the normal standard of these things. So consequently, it gives him very little wiggle room in terms of getting out of it or cancelling it. Uh, Twitter has maintained that it's prepared to sue Musk to force the deal through on the agreed terms. In terms of renegotiating the deal, Twitter itself may not have much room to manoeuvre. This is the deal that's been agreed with shareholders. The shareholders are the sellers, so legally Twitter has to get them to agree to any new sale terms. In the meantime... Twitter has put a pause on new recruitment. Uh, Its shares fell again after the announcement of Musk's filing on Friday. And it's been reported that morale inside the company isn't great. You know, understandably, there's the uncertainty about who's going to own it in the future, uh, what job security is going to be, obviously the public bashing by Musk. But it does bring us back to a central point and one we're going to explore more after the break, which is... The, the power of big tech companies and the power of the people that run them. So I, I've got a quick question for you, though, Frida. How much a part of your life is Twitter? It's hardly my life at all. I'm hardly on Twitter. Yeah, that's kind of the same for me as well. You know, who is on the platform? It just seems to be people in tech, politicians, 
journalists, comedians who want to try out new material. You know, to anybody under the age of 15, explaining Twitter is like trying to explain getting music from a cassette tape to a millennial. You know, you get a lot of blank stares and bored incomprehension. Um, But I I see, you know, uh, the converse, you're pretty active on TikTok. Right. You know, and that's the future. Right. And and I think it's like for me, it's also a case of where is your audience going to be? And, and, and it's not even just for the young anymore. A lot of businesses are going on TikTok as well. So I'm just sort of moving in a little bit in that direction. And another platform that I use is LinkedIn for, for professional reasons. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've seen you on both of those platforms. But the, the thing is, we should be Twitter's core audience. Mm. And the fact that we're not speaks right. to a wider problem that the problem is having uh, in attracting new users and retaining those existing users. Mm. Uh, users. Um, I mean, I'm much more lazy at social media than you are. You're um, a lot better at it. But but it, it's TikTok, along with some of the decentralized social yeah. media platforms that really excite me. It appeals to me in the way that Instagram did when it first came out and in a way that platforms like Snapchat somehow never quite did. So I do wonder if we'll get to the end of this year to find out that billions of dollars have been spent flinging mud backwards and forwards on a channel that no one's really listening to anymore. In case you're wondering, I'm here with Mr. Happy Joy Joy. I thought we we're going to talk about the science of sign today, but no, it's big tech as usual. And you mentioned uh, Uber at the start of the show, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Stay tuned. The FM 89.9. Burger, fries, Milo, BFM 89.9. The Business Station. You're listening to Matt Splane, uh, Mr. Happy Joy Joy, as I was saying here. And uh, we started off talking about sighing, the science of sighing. But no, of course, we've been talking about big tech. We've been talking about Elon. We've been talking about Twitter, uh, TikTok, Snapchat. We've covered everything. And you, But you mentioned Uber at the start of the show. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to get too far into the the details uh, today, partly because there's new information being released every day. So it's this drip feed so that in the time between recording this and uh, you hearing it, there'll definitely be a lot more to the story. We'll be behind the curve. Uh, and also because um, some of the allegations are things that Uber hasn't or hadn't responded to or disputes at the time we recorded this. So which is why I'm at pains to say that This information is in the public domain, but that's not to say that Uber has its own interpretation of the way that information has been presented. Uh, So the Uber files are based on a whistleblower leak of emails, texts, and WhatsApp messages. Uh, More than 120,000 documents uh, covering the period, I think, 2013 to 2017. Uh, They were leaked by one of the company's former lobbyists, guy called Mark McGann. And according to The Guardian, which is behind the revelations, it covers more than 40 countries that Uber was operating in or seeking to operate in at the time. And The Guardian has shared the details with some 40 media organizations so that it can be examined and reported on more thoroughly. Hmm. What are some of the bigger allegations in the leak reveal? 
Well, this is where I get to the big sigh part, I guess. Um, a lot of it relates to lobbying and regulation, which makes sense as yeah. the whistleblower is, or I guess now used to Was. be uh, a lobbyist. Um, you know, I, I did practically anything rather than prepare the notes for this show. I wasted an entire afternoon watching <laughs> Fail Army clips on YouTube. That's how much I don't want to talk about this stuff. So some of the uh, the bigger reveals have been things like Emmanuel Macron, um, the uh, current French president, when he was economy minister, was lobbying um, for Uber, helping to swing support in the uh, French cabinet. Uh, a, senior, a senior member of the EU helped to lobby Dutch politicians on Uber's behalf allegedly secretly. Mm -hmm. uh, there were undeclared meetings with British politicians. Uh, there were issues around the legality or illegality of the way the company operated in some countries in terms of transport laws. And of course, as with any big, tax com uh, big tech company, issues about tax liability. All right. Now, isn't this something we've come to expect as part of doing business in the 21st century anyway? I think that's the issue. You know, it's what we suspect that we're sure goes on, if that sentence makes sense. Um, getting the, the confirmation is just the depressing icing on the cake. We know that big companies recruit political activists. Uh, mm. Uber has or had two of Obama's heavyweight aides, Jim Messina and David Plouffe on its staff. Um, I do like that name. It sounds like the noise a pebble makes when you throw it into a lake. Um, Facebook, of course, has a, a former British deputy prime minister running its PR affairs. By the same token, we know that big companies routinely fund academic research that is likely to show them in a flattering light. Um, Uber, of course, is one of the pioneers of the concept of the gig economy, and not just as a gig economy employer, but also as a vocal proponent of the economic benefits of this kind of work. Now, none of this is necessarily wrong or suspect, but mm. obviously if I offered you a, a big fat fee to produce a paper for me about the benefits of having cats rather than children, <laughs> who are those results likely to please? Um, and I am looking for someone <laughs> to produce that paper, by the way. So it's really that this is being laid bare that we find objectionable? Well, I guess so. You know, I don't think we're projecting any halos over most of these companies. Mm. What is surprising, I think, um, you know, ob objectionable is a, a value judgment. But what is surprising is the sophistication of the networks and the lengths the companies will go to right. to get their way. Uh, take the example of David Plouffe. Uh, he was able to convince the U.S. ambassador to the U.K. Uh, to hold an embassy event where Plouffe could talk about the gig economy. Not right. a traditional lobbying event, but um, nevertheless one where British ministers and politicians would be present, as well as media and business leaders, all receiving Uber's view of the world with the seeming endorsement of the US government. Right. How about the company's connections to the media? Well, as I mentioned, you know, that, that charm offensive in terms of academic research and wider promotion of the gig economy concept was one way to cast Uber in either a spotlight or reflected glory. Lots of newspaper pieces, TV reports, podcasts, you know, pretty much what yeah. I've been doing for the past few years. <laughs> and, you know, the gig economy does have its good sides, but it also needs protections in place for the people that work within it. The recognition that they are employees, that they're not bot-controlled independent partners, 
What was more surprising was the revelation of the company's alleged attempts to engage media tycoons as lobbyists on their behalf. And some of them were, again, allegedly offered Uber equity on, you know, pretty favorable terms. And this was to guarantee coverage. No, I mean, the company has never really had problems in terms of generating headlines. I mean, we're talking Mm. about it now, aren't we? Um, Media tycoons, of course, have political power. And at the time, in the mid-20-teens, there was a lot of negativity surrounding the company. Uh, Some cities and countries were trying to ban it from operating within their borders. There was the the infamous rape case Mm. in India. In France, taxi drivers were taking to the streets to protect their métier and their meters. Uh, So um, pivotal uh, news outlets with the power to shape public opinion and take on politicians and grassroots movements that opposed them would be a key asset. Uh, And finally, well, not exactly finally, (laughs) because as I said, there'll be more to come. There was the lack of hubris of the executives. Um, There were reports that former CEO Travis Kalnick allegedly told aides to the then Vice President Biden that every minute the Vice President kept him waiting was a minute less time he would allocate for him at uh, at Davos, I think it was. I mean, I don't know about you, but I find that absolutely astounding. Yeah, you know, I'm... Okay, that's one thing, but I'm just looking at all the stories, right? And I guess how... You know, you sort of like have that event uh, to get people to 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 think differently. But that's how PR works anyway. Right. I mean, you're trying to get people to be on that side. I mean, that's that's the idea, whether you whether you fall for it. But I think it's the endorsement that comes with it. That's sort of like, all right, equity. There's a lot. Right. There's a lot you can sort of. But it's like it's no surprise. It's just that it's been revealed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's removing that artifice. Mm. And like you said, uh, it's that veneer of endorsement mm. or authenticity yeah. that that's yeah. what makes it so different. And I mean, with that, that Biden case, you know, that why would anyone behave like that? You know, mm. why wouldn't simple common decency come into it. You know, we've both been covering startups for long enough to know that it isn't genius that makes emerging companies successful. It's timing and luck as much as anything else. You know, we've we've all seen amazing ideas, amazing companies and talented founders fail because it's the the right market but the wrong time or suddenly the VC cash dries up, any number of variables. So who is Travis Kalnick? Well, he's one of the lucky guys. So it's that lack of hubris, especially given that the company was operating at a loss on other people's money for the majority of that time. And I think this is the kind of thing that people find distasteful. And that sort of translates into this low opinion that people have of big tech. If you have that kind of disdain for someone who's a vice president, now a president, what's your attitude likely to be towards your customers, your users, your workforce, or your investors? Right. And how has uh, Uber reacted to this? Pretty openly, um, which is commendable, although their reply references employing Eric Holder, a former U.S. attorney general hired to overhaul their business practices. So it's another example of that open door I was talking about. But, you know, I guess we have to give them the benefit of the doubt that he's there to do what he's what they say he's there to do. You know, I've helped a, a number of clients with reputation and crisis management issues over the years. And transparency is something I always advocate. Right. Don't act cagey. Mm. Don't resort to 
to whataboutism, because right. the more you try and obfuscate, the more people are going to dig for information. Mm-hmm. And the easiest story to deal with is always the one that's in front of you. Keep people focused on that. If you need to make changes in the company as, as a result, then you make those changes. I'll paraphrase the opening part of Uber's statement. It's not something I normally do, right. um, but it is quite telling. So there has been no shortage of reporting on Uber's mistakes prior to 2017. Five years ago, those mistakes culminated in one of the most infamous reckonings in the history of corporate America, leading to an enormous amount of public scrutiny, a number of high-profile lawsuits, multiple government investigations, and the termination of several senior executives. So it mm. goes on to quote all the myriad ways that uh, new CEO Dara, uh, I keep giving myself names I can't pronounce, Dara Kosroshawi has changed the uh, company's values, you know, all the usual stuff, yeah. yada, yada. Right. But that is a pretty unvarnished statement from mm. a company worth billions of dollars. You know, I'm not going to debate whether Uber has changed for the better. If it's a better company now, that would be another show. But the transparency and recognition of past mistakes is quite unusual in the tech sector. And it's very different from the defensive way that we've seen other companies react right. when they found themselves under a similar spotlight in recent years. Right. And I think they know that's this good of the CR, this Dara, just to say, I won't bother with her last name, uh, just to say this is it. And, and hopefully they, they move on. Right. I mean, and that's and can we just move on as well? Because it's kind of tiring when you still when you're trying to make a move and you keep being dragged back into old stories. Now, now what now getting to the realm of virtual signaling, is this an indication that Uber has learned its lesson? Well, lessons. Or lessons, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not sure that it really matters because it's like Twitter. We Mm. attach an outsized importance to the company. Uber is just a drop in the global economy. It Mm. simply demands a lot of our attention. And that gives us this idea that it has outsized clout. I mean, going back to the example of Tesla and Ford from a couple of weeks ago, Ford's revenues last year were $136 billion. Tesla's were about $53 billion. Now, that's not to belittle Tesla's achievement. You know, Ford's been in this business for 100 years. Tesla's been doing it for a couple of decades. That is an amazing achievement. But which company do we spend more time talking about? <laughs> the company with $136 billion in revenue or the one oh. with $53 billion? Exactly. So by the same token, Elon Musk's recent embrace of the Republican Party has been touted as having the ability to influence uh, both the US midterms this year and the presidential election of 2024 because he has so many followers and because he has so much clout. And we see in the Uber papers a callousness from some of its senior executives towards issues like violence at anti-Uber protests or the legality of the service. And frankly, we deserve better. Right. You know, right. What about the politicians on the receiving end of the lobbying? Well, I think the British ones are going to be fine because they've got so many other scandals going on that this wouldn't even count as wallpaper. Um, Macron could be in some danger, although I saw in reports he was coming out defending his position. Uh, that was in reports on the, the day we recorded that. But Macron, you know, he he recently won the presidency, but he lost his parliamentary majority. Mm. So he could be politically vulnerable 
towards these shifts in public opinion. And badly behaving global companies are not generally something the nation that adopted liberty, fraternity, and uh, equality generally seem to favor. But that could be another problem in itself. You know, politicians have been talking about uh, taking on big tech with increasingly loud voices over the past few years. What we want and what we've always needed are level and rational policies that deal with the issues and try to anticipate the future. Uh, yes, investigations like this help to expose the level of coziness between regulators and big tech, but we also don't want knee-jerk legislation from lawmakers who are trying to prove that they've got the biggest anti-tech muscles. You know, the tech sector is a long way from being perfect. Um, but those industries are going to be the ones shaping our future. Um, the gig economy, just as one example, of course, mm -hmm. it's not perfect, but millions of people rely on it for their income. It has introduced flexibility into the workforce, and it has brought back people who were excluded from traditional roles. So what we want are laws that help people to make the most of their opportunities with these companies and to ensure that it doesn't move in the opposite direction, which is bonded servitude controlled by bots. Always riveting Matt Armitage. And of course, if you want to get hold of Matt, who is very active on social media, you can find him on Instagram and Twitter at Culture Matt. That's K-L-T-U-R-M-A-T-T. -T. Just make it hard for people to find you with the C instead of with the K instead of C. Or you can also subscribe to the newsletter on Substack for more information about these shows. He'll be back again next week. And of course, uh, this is Enterprise. I'm Frida Liu, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.